Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Asian Seller Podcast. My name is Meghla Bhardwaj, and I'm your host. So today I'm joined by someone who really specializes in sourcing from China and developing products. Uh, please welcome Stephen Selikoff to the show. Hi, Stephen. How are you doing? Hello. How are you? It's, it's been three, four weeks now since I've seen you, and it seems like forever. So I'm so glad to see you again. I know. It was really nice meeting you. We've talked a couple of times, um, you know, by email and on Facebook. We've known each other for, I think, about a year now. And yeah. we did a webinar together a couple of uh, months ago. <laughs> so it was really nice meeting you in Hong Kong and, and China and getting to know you a little bit better. So um, for today's episode, we wanted to talk a little bit about, um, you know, product development specifically for retail and how sellers should um, and need to, you know, um, diversify beyond Amazon. So um, you've been, you've, you recently uh, created a Facebook group uh, focused on this and you teach a lot of this at your, at your course and your uh, Canton Fair experience as well. So before we get into all of that, Stephen, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background and, you know, how did you um, encounter Amazon and uh, what brought you into this, this world of e-commerce? Well, let's see. I have worked for a lot of companies, some of them uh, very large and very famous. And I've been involved with a lot of product development. Again, some of them large and famous and very successful, and some of them big failures as well. Um, and then I started uh, really focusing on, on building my own products and brands, uh, frankly, because uh, my wife, my ex-wife was disabled. I wanted something where I could stay at home. And this is something, frankly, that's pretty universal. If you have a young child and you don't want to be going off to work every day, you want to work from home and take care of your child or older parents or whatever, uh, even if you just want the laptop lifestyle of living wherever you want to live, uh, getting out of that corporate world is a big dream of a lot of people. That's how I started. And uh, I started with some simple products that did uh, pretty well. And uh, in October of 2006, I started on Amazon FBA, um, just about two and a half, three weeks after it was announced. So I'm one of the very first people. But I'm also one of the first people to leave because I went on to Amazon Vendor. And it took me many years to come back to Amazon Marketplace, which is the third-party uh, seller's platform. And my first disappointment was when I first joined, they gave you a free website. Now they don't do that anymore. Okay. And then uh, the other disappointment, of course, was Amazon fees have completely uh, changed since 2006. But I guess I'm kind of the old gangster in that. Okay. <laughs> So let's talk about retail. Now, there was, um, there was an article that I had, in fact, shared on Facebook a couple of days ago, and you had posted a very detailed comment on that, and very rightly so. So, um, you know, my question to you is, is retail dying? And if it is not dying, how is it evolving and changing? Yeah, I, uh, I've, I've heard that retail is it's the retail apocalypse. Retail is over. And I have heard this again and again and again. Years ago, I used to be a fashion photographer. I had long hair and lived in Milan, Italy and New York and shot beautiful models and beautiful clothes. It was great. And of course, that's retail driven. So I can tell you because I have lived through it. In the 70s, everyone said retail is dead. There, We've got this this uh, big gas crisis. No one can, can, uh, can afford to drive out into stores anymore. They were wrong. Uh, 
in the 80s, it was the recession. Retail is dead. And then later in the 80s, shopping malls is killing retail. And of course, retail changes. It's constantly changing. None of these were an apocalypse. The retail industry simply adapted. And that was the 80s. The 90s was mergers and acquisition. I was doing fashion photography in New York when Federated Department Stores bought Macy's. That was a, a big move. Again, everyone said retail apocalypse in the 2000s. We started off with the recession. And then every small town in America was up in arms because Walmart's coming in and it's putting out of business mom and pop shops and the independent specialty retailers are dying. They're not dying. Um, the article you posted talked about uh, stores that are closing and expected to close in, in 2020, but that's financial mismanagement. It's not, uh, retail is not dying. As I said, it's changing. The big change that we've seen in the last um, 15, 20 years or so is the increase of e-commerce and particularly Amazon. Right. But the reality is Amazon is still less than half, just under half of all of e-commerce, which means Amazon is less than 5% of the entire retail world. So retail is not dead. Um, our program, uh, the Canton Fair Experience, we teach people how to sell in retail as well as Amazon. And uh, anyone who's looking to develop products and sell products, there is a world out there waiting for you, whether it's online on Amazon or online on other platforms or selling in retailers directly. It is still a thriving, strong market. There is no retail apocalypse. It's just the same headline that's been repeated for years. Right. So how do you see retailers evolving? Are more retailers, in your opinion, um, adopting e-commerce and focusing more on, you know, online shopping or are they doing a lot of, you know, what, what is O2O or online to offline? Like how is retail evolving in your view? I think it's, it is evolving based on the customer experience. So the experience of sitting at home, middle of the night, can't sleep, get up, get on your computer and, and buy a, a nice watch. That's a great experience. That is a unique experience. But going out with your friends um, and getting, you know, a, a, a nice suit or a nice dress or something, that's still very much of a social occasion. You go with other people and you experience it. There are so many people who just text their buddies and say, hey, I'm, I'm going to go out and go shopping. You want to come along? Yeah, let me come along. Even if it's just buying, you know, a bottle of aspirin, again, it's a social experience. I think that's where Amazon and other online retailers are trying to go. Um, but they also recognize that that's an experience that they can't compete with on every level. So they're starting to buy like Amazon's buying uh, um, uh, Whole Foods. And now they've got Amazon Five Stars. They've got Amazon Go and a bunch of other physical retail stores. Um, I think the other direction is going is technology. We mm -hmm. talked about buying a suit or a dress. Um, I was looking at eyeglasses the other day, and it was rather simple of me to put my photo on and try on the eyeglasses virtually and see what they, how they, what, how they look. So I think mm -hmm. that is definitely an advance. So uh, all of those experiences are going to be see where most of the advances are, and those experiences will also make it more customized uh, to the specific customer. Uh, 
uh, and to the product style, like CPG versus apparel and OTC and so on. Okay, makes sense. So let's say a new seller just starting off with not a lot of um, capital to invest in this business. Should they start with Amazon first and then diversify or should they um, you know, start with the product first and then decide where they want to sell the product? Like what is the approach that someone uh, who doesn't have a lot of capital to invest, what, is, what should their approach be? Oh, you're going to hate my answer because it's going to be both. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, you know, I, I'm, I'm starting to feel like I'm a professor or something here. Um, so every product you have, you want to, to verify that people actually want to buy the product. And there are many ways of doing it. But one of the, the practical ways is sourcing a small amount of it and selling it and seeing if people actually do want to pay for your product. See if it interests people. On Amazon, that means putting up a small amount, uh, getting a, a moderate launch program in, getting people's attention, and seeing if this is something that people naturally come to, if there's organic interest in it, or if you're just going to turn around and put all of your money into PPC. Because the goal is to have products that people really want. So low capital, you want to certainly test it. Amazon is a great place to test it but you want to be testing the right product. Mm -hmm. So that means choosing a product that's based not just on the tools. And, and I think there's no secret that I'm uh, not a, a super fan of finding products through tools. Uh, find products through market gaps. Find products through practical needs. Uh, the best products ever are the ones that people say, oh, why didn't anyone think of that? Mm -hmm. And this is a universal experience. This does not mean you have to be an American living in America, driving Western cars and going to Western movies to be able to understand what the American market is. These are universal needs, universal market gaps. So if you've got, uh, I saw a great product uh, online the other day. Uh, if, if you've got a child and you wash a little girl with long hair and you wash her hair and the soap gets in her eyes or the water gets in her eyes, there's a wonderful, cool little gadget that goes around the forehead and keeps the water from, and the soap from getting her eyes. That is universal. And as a parent of a toddler, you understand that needs. And you may look at that product and say, oh, that would be better if it was in pink or if it had flowers on it or something like that. Or if it had a little rope with a, a stuffy or something, what I guess a rubber one that they can play with and distract themselves while they're being bathed. I, I don't have kids. I'm not the, the, the expert here, but anyone with kids could take that and run with it. And that's a universal need, a market gap that's not being filled. That's the type of product you want. And then put it on Amazon and see if people really purchase it people really purchase it, if they're as excited about it as you are, then you can start to invest a large amount of money in it. Okay. And then do you also use tools on Amazon maybe to, um, you know, to, to do keyword research and try to look for phrases that people are actually typing in to search for that product? Because I think on Amazon, if people are not really searching for that product, it's very difficult for, for that product to be found, right? So do you recommend using tools for anything at all or 
not when I need yours. tools, I, I ask other people to run them other than keyword searches just off of Google. I don't use any of those tools. On the other hand, I do go to my local library where there is piles of research books. I go to Google all the time. I look at all sorts of demographics which are available across the world. Um, for example, a little simple Google search will teach you that in the US, 53% of dogs sleep on the human bed. Hmm. And yet a market search will tell you that there are very few products for dogs that sleep on the human bed other than, well, very few products for dogs to sleep anywhere. There are dog crates, dog kennels, um, dog houses, dog beds. None of them fit the human bed, right. which means all four of those are focused on 47% of the market. So what about the 53% of the market that's not being addressed? Mm -hmm. That's a pretty big market gap. I don't need tools to find that out. Look at things you do every day. Um, try to figure out why you are doing them. So can this be made better? Maybe yes, maybe no. Mm -hmm. Why am I doing it this way? So, um, I, uh, I brush my teeth and I put my toothbrush upside down in a glass because I want to have the top protected. Lots of people do that. Now, there are many little toothbrush hangers out there. Right. And yet so many people put it upside down in the glass. Why is it? What is not happening with that toothbrush hanger that's mm -hmm. not working for people to buy them? Mm -hmm. um, so you look at things and say, what could be better? And then try to figure out why they're not working the way they are. Mm. And if you do that, and that's just building up better habits. If you do that and you focus on that, log it, write it down on a piece of paper. You start doing that after seven days of logging every day, you will have built up a habit of starting to identify where are their products that need to, need to exist that don't exist yet, or where are their products that can be made better? Why is that little toothbrush holder as cool as it is not being used by so many people. Right, that makes sense. So let's say we have identified uh, a gap in the market and um, the next step will be to test it on Amazon, right? So you would look for a supplier either in China or India. And how would you order that product if it doesn't exist in the first place? You know, what would your approach be? I mean, how would you test a product if it's not available in the market, you know, without having to spend a lot of money on it. So there's a few, there's a few ways. Number one, if it's something that entails a lot of money upfront to create, um, for example, if it needs a, a, a new mold or something like that, don't start spending that money upfront. I mean, unless you're made with tons of money, in which case I'll give you my email address and you can send me <laughs> checks. Um, start off just by talking to people, strangers, not right. your friends, not your spouse, not your kids. They're all going to either tell you they love it or they hate it. Um, talk to strangers and say, hey, I've got this wonderful idea. I, I've got, you know, sneakers that make you run fast. And by the way, they're anti-gravity. You can float up in the air and see what people's responses are. Mm -hmm. If that works, go on Fiverr. Get someone to, to illustrate what your concept is mm -hmm. and show people that, that image and ask them the same questions. And while you're at it, ask them, how much would you pay for it? 
So you get a sense of, of what that is going to cost. Now, you also want to narrow down the products that you're starting with. And again, if you're on a tight budget, don't go for the one that needs a $15,000 mold to start off with. There are lots of other products. Um, there are products, um, everyone who does a print-on-demand t-shirt shop knows this instinctively because they can create their, their t-shirts for very little money and they can test them out. And they say, yeah, this is one that people love and this is one that people are just ignoring. So there are lots of products that you can start off with without needing the expense of, of a mold. But the key is, whether you find your product with Jungle Scout or Helium 10 or Zone Guru or through uh, market gaps like we just talked about, is, and this is, this is where I really am different from a lot of the, the YouTube videos that are out there, I don't believe that what you should do is go out there, find a product that's doing well, copy it, and get a piece of that pie. To me, you're going to be paying a lot of PPC uh, for that. Instead, even if you're starting with a product that's similar to something out there, change it. Mm -hmm. Differentiate it. You want to make sure that you're different, that you stand out from everyone else that's selling a similar product. And then you go through the exact same steps we talked about. Talk to your friends. Say, hey, it's another sneaker product. They're going to say ho-hum. And by the way, it's anti-gravity. You can float up and now they're interested. Mm -hmm. Differentiate doesn't mean take that sneaker and it's always in blue, make it in red. Doesn't mean, you know, take, sometimes that doesn't make sense. Um, karate belts. And I've, I haven't done karate since I was a kid in, in elementary school, but I think it's like brown, blue, yellow, purple, stuff like that. And of course, black belt. You, you look at that and if you're not an expert and you say, well, I'm going to make a variation in rainbow colors because it's not out there. Mm. No one's going to buy it. So right. when you make your change, you talk to people, make sure it's something they're interested in, make sure it's something that they think adds value to the product. Those sneakers are now anti-gravity, but always make sure before you go ahead and make those changes. And sometimes, as I said, you don't have to do big changes, just like print on demand people know, it does not have to be expensive. Just make the change that people want. Right. That makes sense. And of course, sellers in Asia who want to sell on Amazon.com, um, they could probably, you know, try to look for Facebook groups or other communities online um, where there are people that are interested in, you know, that specific product. It doesn't have to be like a face-to-face, -face, you know, focus group kind of environment. Oh, um, exactly. They can created, ask in, right? in in groups, we were just talking about the thing that keeps the, the, the soap and the water out of a toddler's eyes. There are tons of Facebook groups of, of parents of kids. So, yeah, you, Facebook groups are, are a, a very good way. Not Facebook groups for Amazon sellers, right. but Facebook groups for people who would be interested in that product. You have um, a really good... Um, I like to blow glass to relax. So let's say you have blown glass flower pots. Mm -hmm. You can go in a gardening group and ask about blown glass flower pots. Is, this, is anyone interested in this? Would you pay for it? How much would you pay for it? So um, yeah, you don't, don't have to worry about being in the U.S. For, for Asian sellers, there are lots of ways of getting that information. Awesome. Awesome. So 
how much, what is the minimum capital required for someone who wants to, you know, develop a product? Of course, it varies significantly and, you know, depends on the product. But let's say, um, you know, someone wants to start with $5,000, you know, is, would that be enough? Or is there really no way to tell? It is very, very difficult to tell. If you're starting off with a fabric, a textile product, you could probably get away with $1,500, $2,000. If you're starting off with a product that has, that requires a plastic injection mold, you might need a minimum of, of $10,000. Mm-hmm. Frankly, if, there, if you have to say one number, I would split it right down the, the middle between $2,000 and $10,000 and right. say $6,000 is a good uh, place to position yourself. But if you're on budget, there are so many ways to save money. You can source a similar product, a small amount, perhaps through AliExpress. Again, put it online and see if it sells. You can make some prototypes yourself. You can work with friends and, and, and do stuff and get it up onto Etsy instead of Amazon and see if it sells. Mm-hmm. So uh, always validate, make sure that, that something is, is has... Uh, proven sales before you dump all of your money in it. I, uh, there's a few things I mentioned I don't believe in. One of the, Another thing I do not believe in is that your first product you should lose money on. Oh, you should lose money because you're learning. A lot of people and, and friends of mine say that, and, and, and I can see a strong uh, argument for it. But to me, I want to make money. So everything I sell, I want to make money on. Right. Absolutely makes sense. So for testing a product in Amazon, like how many pieces would you generally order and how long would you, um, you know, sell the product on Amazon for to determine if it is a success or, or a failure? Is there any, you know, of course, again, it varies from product to product, but is there any, you know, are there any benchmarks? So let's say you, you should at least test a minimum of, you know, 100 pieces or 200 pieces and, um, you know, be able to get, uh, certain conversions or, uh, you know, are there any benchmarks at all that you have for testing products on Amazon? No, since I am not the Amazon seller expert, I'm right. not going to, 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 to venture into that. I can give you some, some basic guidelines just in general though. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is that timing is important. So if you test something right now and right now being the beginning of the holiday season, everything sells. You know, you could be selling, you know, broken staplers and pens that have been snapped in half and people are going to buy it up. So that's not going to give you an accurate reading. So Mm -hmm. when you do your testing, try to do it through through first quarter, second quarter, third quarter. Don't do your testing in in fourth quarter. Um, The other thing is um, it's going to depend on your budget. If you have the budget to, 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 to buy 500 units, and risk that all, realizing those 500 units might s- sell very, very slowly, um, then you're very different than someone who has a tight budget who may say, well, let me just order 20 units mm-hmm. and see if they sell. Mm-hmm. And then when you look to see if they sell, it's a question of how fast do they sell? Now that they're up there, now people are aware of it. Suddenly they start selling and they sell three a day. That's pretty good compared to selling one every three, three days. So the rate of the sales and the time of the year that you put them up to sell are definitely critical. I'm sure there are lots of other elements that people who use these tools can track and tell I'm, I'm not that person. 
Right. So what about sourcing online versus sourcing at a trade show? Uh, do you have any, do you prefer one over the other or do you have any advice for sellers on when they should source online versus go to a trade show? If you have any opportunity to go to a trade show, the, the big ones or the smaller ones, I always advise doing that. It's an opportunity to, to actually interact with the product, to pick it up, to feel it, to know whether this jacket, you know, the texture feels rough or smooth, to know if your bed linens feel rough or smooth, to know just how heavy um, that little toy car is. Uh, all of these are aspects that you can't tell when you're looking online. Um, these days, a lot of the online resources are weighed heavily towards trading companies. And that's, that's both good and bad. I really advise people who first time um, buying from, from China or other foreign sources to definitely don't turn up your nose at a trading company. A good trading company will teach you so much. They will really help you. A bad trade company is same as a bad factory. It's going to be a bad experience no matter what. But um, if you actually have a chance to go to a trading show, you get to interact with the product. And then secondly, and just as important, you get to inter interact with the supplier. You get to talk to them. You get to learn from them. You get to ask them what else they have that they're not showing right now. And even if it's a trading company um, or a, uh, a distributor at a trade show, you're already one up on the competition that hasn't had a chance to go. Now, I realize that trade shows are hard to get to. They're not everywhere. But if you have the chance, I really, really advise it. Yeah. The other thing I like about trade shows is you're seeing so many products at the same time. And it just triggers, uh, you know, so many ideas. Oh, yeah. You, you just cannot do that online. You know, online, of course, you're going, you know what products you're looking for. And you're going, going to Alibaba or Global Sources to search for that specific product. But when you're at a trade show, you're walking down an aisle, you see so many products at different booths, and you probably wouldn't have thought of, uh, you know, developing a product um, that you might see at a booth. So I think that's something that I really like about trade shows. It just gives you so many ideas. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, you could be looking at, you know, really cool um, drinking glasses in one booth, and then these, you know, really cool um, light up sneakers at another booth and you suddenly start thinking, wait a second, if we put these lights into these drinking glasses, yeah. we could have something unique and different. Exactly. So um, what about, okay, so let's say we've got a really good product and we've, um, you know, ordered some pieces um, online or, you know, a similar product and we've tested it on Amazon and it seems like a good product. So what's next? Um, you know, try to contact suppliers and get it mass produced. Any tips over there for people to, you know, how to contact suppliers and what sort of uh, things to look at when, when people are vetting uh, suppliers of factories? Yeah. Uh, number one thing with, with, with suppliers and factories is communication. Talk, 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 mm -hmm. get to know them. Uh, I've got a buddy here in Seattle that is a, Yes, I think he's at this point 20 year supplier on Alibaba mm -hmm. as a factory. And he's not a factory. He's here in Seattle. I just had okay. lunch 
with him yesterday. Wow. <laughs> but that happens on yeah. Alibaba. I, I know of another person, Alibaba, who's been selling for at least 10 years as a factory with wonderful images of a factory. And he sells cell phone screen protectors. And mm -hmm. he actually lives in a, he sells everything out of his apartment in, uh, in China. And he just sources it from factories when people want it. And he sends it off because uh, it's easy on Alibaba to, to establish a presence that really isn't accurate. But if you communicate, and frankly, uh, whether it's Alibaba or global sources, or whatever, you'll find that a lot of your suppliers will be happy to talk to you on WeChat. So right. download WeChat, talk to them on WeChat. And then if you're not, if you're happy with them, great. If you're wondering, gee, are they a factory or not? Or even are they more than just, you know, one person at the end of a, of a phone? In the middle of a conversation, surprise them. Mm -hmm. Say, hey, can you turn on your WeChat video and give me a tour of, of your factory? Give me a tour of your premises. Mm -hmm. And by doing so, if it's really, you know, my buddy here in Seattle, he's going to say, no, I can't. <laughs> uh, if it's someone in their, in their apartment, they, oh, no, they're going to come up with all sorts of excuses. Oh, the, the, the factory's in another city. Or it's a sister factory or an associate factory. And then you'll learn you know, whether they're being honest and everything up front. So, so that will help you when you, when you talk with them, communicate. Okay. Do you think at trade shows, um, are exhibitors more upfront about whether or not they're a factory, um, you know, versus a trading company? I mean, is it easier to tell if they are a trading company and, or a manufacturer at a trade, trade show versus online? Absolutely. Particularly since sometimes the factories are really proud that they're factories. And, and you'll walk up and they'll have piles of photos of factories. They'll have factory social audits like BSIC. They'll be inviting you to come visit their factory and so on. And all of those are indications that they are a factory. But I'm also going to take a step backwards and, and say, again, that sometimes, particularly when you're new, it's great to work with a trading company. You know, mm -hmm. Don't dismiss them out of hands because they can help you and uh, oftentimes they can help with smaller MOQs um, and they can teach you. So trading companies themselves are naturally not bad. Uh, right. But if you are looking for a factory, it's a lot easier also to tell at a, a trade show. Right. And then sometimes uh, trading companies can actually offer better prices, especially if you're looking for low MOQs because they're buying, uh, you know, the product in bulk from one factory, especially if it's a generic kind of item. I think if it's uh, something that you're developing yourself, and of course um, it, the price may be higher, but if it's a generic kind of item, like, I don't know, fidget spinners or something. <laughs> um, yeah, or, or, or if you're developing something that's based on um, a generic product. Right. For example, I just talked about, I blow glass and it'd be nice to do a little flower pot made out of blown glass, but let's say you want to do a flower pot that's covered with artificial flowers. Artificial flowers are a great generic item that a, a trading company can get at a much lower price per unit than you can get from the factory who may require you to buy an entire container load. The trading company can get smaller quantities and just arrange to have them glued on the outside of a flower pot. Right. Now you've got a flower covered flower pot difficult to say. <laughs> and, um, uh, and by going to a trading company, you've got it at a much lower price than you would have to go if you went to a factory. Right. Okay. So, so now we've got our product, you know, manufactured. And of course, 
there are a lot of, I mean, we're simplifi- oversimplifying the entire process, but I want to get to, you know, the, the retailers uh, part. So how do you, how do we f- identify retailers and how do we reach out to retailers to, to show them the product that we've developed and to get our product on their shelves? Google is your friend. Okay. Um, if you're in the U S it's, it's a lot easier, but, um, as Asian sellers trying to reach U.S. retailers, um, Google becomes your friends. You, let's say you want to sell to gift stores. You can mm-hmm. Google gift stores in Nebraska, and you will get piles and piles of gift stores. You can start. You can do a list of what are the uh, top 100 most popular cities in the U.S., and then Google gift stores for each one of these cities. Let's say you have a, a bike helmet that has um, flashing arrows that say left and right before Mm -hmm. someone turns. You can Google bike stores in the top 50 or 100 cities in the U.S., and you'll get all of these independent stores. And that becomes your first step because you want to scale. So once you can sell to independent stores and they're buying your special bike helmet, then you can start approaching Walmart and Target and uh, Canada, you can Canadian Tire in Canada and so on. Um, larger chain stores and say, hey, they all have a form online that you can go to. There are other ways of approaching them as well. But mm-hmm. uh, definitely, you know, being outside of the U.S., that's a great way of starting and saying, I've got this great product and it's selling really well. It's selling on Amazon at X number per month. It's selling in independent stores at, you know, this number uh, per week, and are you interested in seeing it? Okay, it's and not it's not mystical. It it's pretty straightforward. And are they usually responsive? I mean, of course, it depends on the product. But um, even if they are not interested in the product, are they responsive generally? Um, you'll find when it comes to when we said scaling, so you start with the independents, right. and you'll find that those independents are much more responsive than big chain stores. Mm-hmm. If they're not interested, they're going to treat it like junk mail. They may not even open it up. Right. But they right. want something that is different than the other bike store two blocks away. They want someone coming to their bike store rather than their competition. So they're looking for things that will bring foot traffic into the store. They want to add to the market basket in that store. And if you have a bike helmet that's different than anyone else's, if you have a bike helmet that has lights for left and right, I don't know if there are others out there, <laughs> yeah. but um, uh, that would draw people into the store. They want that product. The, uh, the other challenge you face is getting that product into their hands. Right. And there are a lot of, of third-party warehouses that do what's called pick and pack. So you can, again, Google is your friend. You can Google these warehouses and they will do fulfillment. You can look for warehouses plus fulfillment, warehouses plus logistics. Those are the searches you do. And you'll find warehouses that will stock all of these. And when you sell to retailers, you don't sell just one bike helmet like you do on on Amazon. You sell a carton of six bike helmets or 12 bike helmets. Mm -hmm. And if you've got bike helmets in red, blue, yellow, and green, now you're selling 12 of the red ones, 12 of the blue ones, 12 of the yellow ones, and 12 of the green ones. So now your one sale is 48 different bike helmets. That's a lot of money. Right, right. 
So in terms of, um, you know, margins, what are the margins that retailers often look for? And, um, you know, of course, that will determine how much you source the product for. Yeah. So you want to source your product at a 7x or 10x multiplier. That means, Mm -hmm. or more. Uh, my partner, Amy, in the Canton Fair Experience always talks about 10x. Mm-hmm. I talk about 7x because I'm old and that's where it used to be. And that's still what's talked about in Shark Tank and Dragon's Den and so on. Uh, but that means that the product sells, so the, the retail price is seven times more than your raw cost. Or in the case of Amy, it's 10 times more than your raw cost. And some of our members get as high as 20 and higher times the raw cost. And you want that because then there are margins built in. So something sells on the shelf for $40. Uh, In most cases, the retailer, particularly the the specialty and independent retailers, have purchased that and keystone the price. Keystoning is a term for doubling the price. Mm -hmm. So if you see it on sale for $40, that means they paid $20 for it. Mm -hmm. So let's say that bike helmet sells for $40. That means they paid you $20 for it. And you want to make sure that you make some money on it. So a $40 retail price with a 10x multiplier means you paid $4 for it. And you're selling it to the retailer for $20. Um, figure that you've got, you know, maybe 4 or $5 worth of, of uh, other costs involved in it, including shipping and so on. So you're making 10 to $11 um, per unit. Mm-hmm. That's not bad at all. And when you look at 48, you know, your red, yellow, green, blue uh, bag helmets, you're looking at uh, 48 units, that's, you know, 480 to $600. That's really not bad for a single sale. And if they sell, the retailer is going to want more. And here's the great trick. Mm -hmm. If the green ones sell faster than the blue or red ones, they'll reorder the green ones. And you can, you now as the seller to retailers, you get to have your own MOQ and your own reorder amounts and your own minimums. Mm-hmm. So they say, great, the, 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 the green ones are selling out. You say, great, you want another carton? There's six in the carton. There you go. It's $120. This is where you send the money. Interesting. What is some advice that you have for sellers to be successful in, in 2020? What are some of the strategies that people should keep in mind um, you know, in, in, the, in the new year? So... Uh, we were talking a lot about retail, but let, let's let's focus on Amazon as well as, as right. retail. Right. And Amazon has, the, the amount of sellers have been growing exponentially every year. So expect in 2020 that there is going to be even a larger amount of sellers. They're all going to be using the same tools that draw from the same data, um, the same sources, Uh, The same filters are applied and a lot of people are going to get the same results. And if you do that, um, you know, as Adam Smith said 250 years ago in the law of supply and demand, that your supply curve with an excess amount of suppliers is going to be artificially shifted to the right. Equilibrium points going to come down, which means your price is going to come down. You're not going to be making much money. So I would say my top three ways of of succeeding in 2020 is to differentiate, Mm -hmm. to differentiate, Mm -hmm. and to differentiate. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Make your product 
different. Because mm-hmm. if you don't differentiate your product, mm-hmm. you're going to be differentiating by how much you spend on PPC. Mm-hmm. And that's a losing proposition. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's so common. Um, just a couple of days ago, a seller reached out to me and, you know, um, she said that she's losing money on the product because she's spending a lot on PPC and um, she's trying to hold on to that product and hoping that organic, um, you know, sales will pick up. But yeah, it's a long game. You've got to have deep pockets if, uh, you know, to do that. Um, okay, so differentiate. That's that's interesting. So, Stephen, this has been really, um, you know, insightful. And I'm sure people will um, l- have learned a lot about um, about retail and how to expand and, you know, think differently. So do you want to tell us a little bit about your course and uh, especially Canton Fair Experience and, uh, you know, what you... Uh, what, what that entails and um, when is the next uh, Canton Fair experience going to be held? Sure. A lot of what we talked about tonight is a little bit of what we teach in the Canton Fair. It is mm-hmm. very um, instruction heavy. Uh, we teach a lot, everything from soup to nuts. We talked about uh, coming up with, with product ideas. We go through multiple ways of coming up with product ideas. We talked about validating that customers actually want those products. We go through a list of 14 different ways of, of validating that can be done in person or remotely. We talk about negotiating to make sure that you can get the best possible price. We talk about, as we had mentioned earlier, communication. Um, we talk about um, bringing your products uh, onto Amazon and into retail and we do this for over 40 hours of training. Mm-hmm. And this then is before did, and during, or is this only before? This is before you even get to the Canton Fair. So our class, the next class starts at the end of February. Mm-hmm. And that's focused on the April Canton Fair. And then we all meet up in China at the Canton Fair and we go through it together. And we teach you how to... Um, recognize the, the, the suppliers that you may want to do business with, how to communicate with them, how to, again, how to negotiate with them, how to build that relationship that comes from, well, as we talked about in Hong Kong, the long dance. Um, and basically, we give you all of the tools that you need to have a successful import business, a manufacturing business, not just an Amazon business, but a business that you can build and, and live from. Um, we don't talk about, oh, of course we talk about sales as, as a, um, uh, a measure of success, but we don't go around talking about how big sales are. We want to talk about how big profits are. Mm-hmm. And we are lucky enough to have some incredible experts that join us as well. People that are not YouTube famous, but people that are famous because they're on TV and the networks and BBC and NPR and so on. So we really love it. And basic, you know, if I haven't made it clear, it's a two-part program. The first part is all training. The second part is all um, in China, uh, on the ground, hand-in-hand sourcing. Um, So we're really, really proud of it. We're really proud of, of all of our participants. In fact, we just had to get together with them tonight virtually because they come from all over the world. Right. And it's incredible 
to just a, a matter of months to see how much more confidence they have, the ability and the knowledge. I mean, I love them all. It really becomes a, a family right. and they are doing great. So I love it. If anyone's interested, it's the Canton Fair Experience, the Canton Fair Experience.com. There's a big, long website on it. You know, since I did a lot of the writing, it's probably way too wordy. As you can tell, I love to talk. <laughs> and, uh, and it's really exciting. If people want to take their business to that level, there is absolutely nothing out there like what we do. And that's pretty cool. I guess now that I think about it, we put into practice what we say. We differentiate. Right. Absolutely. All right. So, Stephen, thank you so much for uh, your time. And um, I hope to see you sometime again, maybe in April, uh, you know, China, Hong Kong. Maybe, maybe before. <laughs> I've got to find a reason to come out to Singapore. Everyone Absolutely. tells me it's wonderful. Yes, definitely. And uh, if you do, you know, we'd be, uh, I'd be happy to organize a meetup over here with some of the sellers. There are a lot of budding sellers in Singapore and also neighboring countries, you know, Thailand, Vietnam. So we could, uh, you know, arrange something for you over here to I've, meet up I've, with I have got here. to put that on my 2020 to-do list. Yes, you should. Definitely. Singapore is a beautiful place to visit. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Thank you thank so much. Thank you so Stephen. much. Yeah, All right. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.